Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Pia Berengini, the creative director of LPA, an entrepreneur, a wife, and a dog mom based in Los Angeles. This is my new podcast, Everything is the Best, where we basically ask interesting people, how did you go from zero to yacht? I'm always curious how the hell people became successful, and I figured you would be too. Get on the internet with me. Let's laugh, let's cry, let's overshare, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. It's all for you, baby. Thanks for listening. Love you, mean it. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. Morgan. And Taylor is officially worldwide. I'm officially worldwide. I'm in this shit, bitch. I know, the pictures are popping. I can't wait to see my Instagram feed. <laughs> Oh, anticipation of your own Insta. I love. I can't wait to see your Instagram feed either. I know it's gonna be so. Can't good. wait to see your outfits. You haven't showed me anything. Well, because I just ordered them last night, uh, and I leave where? in a week. Princess Polly. What did you want to do with your notebook? Oh, okay. I have something to talk about today. I wanted to instead of like throwing tons of shit at you, like we have been in the shorter intros, bring up this topic that came to my for you page, and Ooh. I sent it to Morgan, but it was like late as fuck last night I when I got it. Watch it. So. Anyways, it was this girl and she was talking about when people talk negative about you, think negative about you. And basically, she said that her life changed the very day that she learned how to convert all of the curses and hexes and mean, negative, dark ass energy that people threw at her into good juju. Not to be a mirror and throw it back. She doesn't want it to be a boomerang. She wanted to take it in and harness that energy that's being given to her. For fucking free. She taught herself and set up the spiritual, basically, filter to harvest all energy, negative, positive, whatever, into manifestation and energy for herself to continue to be that bitch. Holy shit. And it was the most. Did you get a how-to guide? Altering. She did an entire how-to video on it, guys. Like, there's so much. And that's what I want to do. Me too. And Morgan, that's what the fuck we used to do. I know. Like, I still do it sometimes. Me too. And, but like, m- more recently, we've been in our heads. Like, yeah. I think it's like partnered with like seasonal depression, fucking Mercury's dumbass. In the month of June. And the month of June, point blank, period. <laughs> but Morgan and I, when this all started, like, not when the podcast started, but when we started getting our following, we started talking about how, like, when we would get an influx of new listeners, you get an influx of also bad 
bad reviews. Right. She was talking about how if we thought of energy as if it was an algorithm and someone is talking negative and commenting something negative on your TikTok video, that's good for you. It gives you higher engagement. Right. And it's the same for energy. An algorithm is only a human manifestation of what energy does. Okay, I think I'm with you. So those negative comments, they're giving you engagement, they're boosting your post, and they're allowing it to be shared with more people. Right. So why not use spoken word and thought in the same manner in your physical body? As a life boost. As a life boost. And then I started thinking about anytime we get an influx of bad reviews, what happens? We're on the fucking charts, bitch. Every time. Every time. Every time we get one bad review, we're thrusted on the fucking charts. Yeah. So you know what? That's how we're going to do it. That's how we're going to hit our goals. We're going to set the intention that anything negative that anybody can ever think, processed, and cleansed, and boosted. We're going to launder energy through our bodies. Yes. 100%. We're laundering your energy, bitch. No energy launderers. Keep talking so, shit. Call the FBI. Everyone just in <laughs> Call the CIA right just, now. Everybody, we're energy launderers. We're laundering the energy. Yep. Yours. And I was like, that makes so much sense. You need to watch the whole video. I, I need to link it. I need to find it. I said it should be in my messages. Yeah. I do remember one night where you did send me a really a video really late and I didn't open it before work and then it got lost because we started texting. Yeah. I think it was literally last night or maybe tomorrow. Yeah. The day before. Tomorrow night. Yeah. Tomorrow night. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Tomorrow night. I don't remember exactly when it was, but it changed my fucking train of thought. Like it changed my entire life. I like that. That's what we're going to start doing. And then my next video right after that, my fucking algorithm, my for you page knows I'm down bad bitch. Mm -hmm. Because she sent me another one right after about Marilyn Monroe's psychological effects of confidence. And that's oh. it's been studied and like all this shit. And she talked about how, you know, Marilyn Monroe, she could be Norma Jean and go out in public and not ever be noticed as Marilyn Monroe. But then she would go out and turn on her Marilyn Monroe and like a magnet and she said that it was the way that she held herself the way that she smiled the way that the tone in which she spoke the confidence that she had in herself changed the way that other people saw her and then they throw energy back into it Mm -hmm. and they're like when you have positive energy about yourself you can radiate larger so people want to see what you're doing people want to watch you they want to know your name not arrogance confidence in the conversation to be able to look someone in the eye in order to shake their hand in order to carry on a conversation with them even if it's something someone that you don't even know and something you don't give a fuck that's about that's a mama over here needs to work on confidence in the conversation i'm like see ya when Bye. i come back from italy just so we all are fucking clear it's on bitch brand new bitch brand new bitch brand new studio <laughs> chill <laughs> chill chill oh my god chill oh my god we gotta get through july next yeah <laughs> i'm just excited for spooky season to come around Me because too. we're not putting as much pressure on it this year yeah it'll just be fun we'll just get to we're just gonna vibe through. we're gonna do vibes only mm-hmm. we don't need to change the logo she looks cute she's cute she's fine morgan and taylor the logo is fucking mm-hmm. fine unless you take a fire ass pick that's the only way Dear yeah. media listening to this right now, they're like, no. They're like, absolutely not, girl. It's fucking perfect. Don't get rid of it. What is this episode? 143. What we today? Part two. Part two of me. And cock-a-doodle-doos. Cock-a-doodle-doos. Big fat fucking cock lane. Big fat fucking cock lane. <laughs>
Morgan's is unhinged in it not a unhinged. good way. Like for why? Like what am I doing the last couple of days? I'm like, let me find the literal craziest things. To but talk about. I like that. Yeah, me too. They're fun. I love easy that. to do. If you guys have any idea, well, fuck, it won't matter because we won't yeah. get to record. I was gonna say if you have any idea what we should do for my birthday app, let me know. We could run it and pull on Insta. Yeah, or we could just do whatever we want because we're gonna take all that energy, process it, launder it, and shoot it out of our. With creativity. Eyes. Yeah. I'm going to like WandaVision the fuck out of this, you know, like in the episode when she. I want to WandaVision <sighs> the entire world with my third eye. Me too. Laser beam. Anyways, I am in Italy. Go check out my feed. She must be fucking fire. She's popping. Learn off. to launder your energy like a badass bitch. I'm going to try. Leave us a review so we can get to the K and yes. follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at Creeps and Crimes Podcast if you want to check out my fire ass fucking insta feed it's gonna be taylor j with we'll share it on groups and crimes yeah actually they're both tagged and then morgan is more.m double, double the g. g and then also 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 if i can remember i'm gonna harass morgan about it if it's what? not up to link that tiktok so everyone can see it okay yeah because it's so good i'll put it on our story if you're driving throw that shit on cruise control if you got a glass pour that shit up and let's get creepy, creepy. Okay, Morgan, what do you have for us today? Okay, well, the name that you guys are seeing on the screen, it is not intended to be dirty. Okay. Just for some reason, the city of London decided to name a street Cock Lane. Oh. And that's on them. Cock Lane. That's not on us today. God, why? And of course, with any name like that, somebody is bound to haunt the shit out of it. Oh, fuck yeah. So today I'll be telling the story of the Cock Lane ghost. Oh, yeah. In the late 1750s, a user, which is basically what a loan officer was then, mm. named William Kent, married a local grocery store owner's daughter, and her name was Elizabeth Lines. Oh. And I'm going to call her Liz because we're going to actually come in contact with another Elizabeth. So okay. just to keep this. This is Liz one. This is Liz. Liz marries Will. Will originally was from Norfolk and Liz was originally from Limeham. And the two quickly moved away from their roots into a town called Stuke Ferry. While in Stuke, the two were blissfully married, running an inn and the local post office. They were happy. They were in love and they wanted to start a family. Liz got pregnant shortly after and the two were ecstatic. Her sister, Fanny, her real name is Frances, but she goes by Fanny, moved in to help Liz around the house, do housework, etc. because William was so busy running the inn in the post office. And we know back then women were men's property. Yeah. no. So he she, didn't give a fuck about her being nothing. pregnant. You know no. what I mean? Like he, he wasn't going to help her. Right. The day they were able to bring their little bundle of joy into their family, Liz tragically passed during childbirth. No. William knew that he would be unable to grieve the loss of his wife and care for a newborn baby, all while running two businesses. So Fanny, his sister-in-law, Liz's sister, was asked to stay. She took care of her nephew while maintaining housework and trying to be there for her brother-in-law. But it wasn't long before more tragedy ripped William Kent apart. And this is when his baby boy passed away. Oh, God. And even after that, Fanny stayed. Oh, she wanted to be there to help her brother-in-law get through all of this tragedy, mm. which obviously we know where this ended up. Yeah. The two, Fanny and Will, got a little close. They fell in love and they wanted to be married ASAP. But 
everyone frowned upon the relationship. Yeah. Fanny's family, which of course is Liz's family. Literally. William's family and even the church. Yeah. It was a little thing called canon law, which is a set of regulations, rules, ordinances for the church in all aspects of the law, including marital. And because Will had a baby with Liz, who was living, the baby was born living, a marital union with Fanny was just impossible. And it was a sin within the church. So he's like, okay, well, fuck. I've sinned because I've been fucking Fanny. Yeah. And I'm going to pack my shit up and I'm going to move to London. And I'm going to leave Fanny behind. Uh And hopefully (laughs) his new life in London would erase all of those sins that he's allowed himself to indulge in and let him start over. Fanny moved out and into one of her brother's houses, but she never stopped. She sent him letter after letter after letter, letting him know how much she loves him. She wanted to spend the rest of her life with him. They are eternity and so on and so forth. Eventually, Will caves and Fanny's letters worked. She was on the next train to London. Oh, shit. The two entered into the relations again, living together without being married. Great. So this was a huge secret to keep from the public. They first were living in East Greenwich and then moved over near the mansion house. And the mansion house is the official residence of the Lord Mayor of London. Now, I don't know if it was back then, but it is today, which I'm assuming it probably has carried over that the mayor lives there. The Lord Mayor. And it's a pretty big fucking deal. Well, William had started giving out loans again when he got back to London, and he actually had given a loan to the landlord of the mansion house. Now, I don't know if that was the mayor or his house manager or whatever, but whoever the landlord was of the mayor's house, that's who got the loan. Nonetheless, Liz's family reached out to the mansion house and exposed their dirty laundry that they were living together. They were in a romantic relationship in sin against the eyes of the church. Not getting exposed after you do a loan for someone. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Well, the family, Liz's family and Fanny's parents emailed the the mayor's house. Emailed? Or, I mean, emailing back in in the 1700s. Mailed the mayor's house. They sent a pigeon. And was like, they're living in sin and you have a pretty big rap. Yeah. So their landlord decides to use this against them and he starts a little case of blackmail. Mm-hmm. He's threatening to expose them so that he doesn't have to pay his loan back. But Will was like, bro, give me my fucking money or I'm immediately I'm going to call the police. <sighs> but the landlord insisted. So Will kept through with his promise and had him arrested and sent to jail. Uh- This landlord blackmail loan defaults start to become a pretty big pattern throughout Will's life and eventually will be the demise of it. Will and Fanny were still in secret. No one believed the poor man and they lived their lives. So no, this guy's trying to blackmail them. They sue him. He goes to jail and he's like, well, they're living in sin. Like church, like (laughs) persecute them, prosecute them right now. Yes, this was fraud, but. But they're living in sin. And, sin. And, and, you know, there was no separation of between church and church state. And state like back you, then. you did get in trouble if you That's did shit whack. like that. Think about that. They were attending their church, which was the St. Sepultry Without Newgate, which was and is the largest Anglican parish. Sorry, I never pronounced that right. <laughs> Anglican parish church in the city of London. While they were there, they met the officiating clerk, which means he was like basically the lead singer of the choir. <laughs> so he's Jay-Z and yep. his name was Richard Parsons. He was well-respected in the church and outside. And he had the voice of an angel, but he was poor and he was known to be a drunk. 
Will and Fanny had trusted Richard and they spilled the beans on themselves to the officiating clerk of the church. Oh my God. And Richard was like, oh, I'm so sorry. What a horrible life you've had. I'm so sympathetic. My heart hurts for you. You know, why don't you come and use my lodgings in my home on Cock Lane? On Cock Lane. Why don't you come stay in Cock Lane? Why don't you come stay in the Cock House? In Sin. In Cock House. Come live in Sin in the Cock House. (laughs) Yes. Right now. Which was just around the corner from the church. It was a three-story home with one bedroom on each floor connected by a big winding staircase. So the two moved in with Richard, his wife, and his two girls. And again, because he didn't learn last time, Will gave Richard a loan of 12 guineas, which are like those gold coins. Right. And Richard was supposed to pay back one guinea per month for the next year. And they began calling themselves Mr. and Mrs. Kent, even though they weren't married. Okay, guys, we're just adding on to the sin. I know. (laughs) Sin again, lies now. Shortly after moving, Fanny was pregnant. And the house on Cock Lane was not feasible for a pregnant lady because it was haunted. About seven or eight months into her pregnancy, Will had to go away to this wedding over in the countryside. And before leaving, he asked Richard's oldest daughter, who was 11 years old and also named Elizabeth, to watch over Fanny. Okay. Take care of her, maybe sleep in her bed, just make sure she's all right. Here we go again. Which is exactly what Elizabeth did. But on both nights that Will was gone, Fanny and Elizabeth couldn't sleep. They were up at all hours of the night hearing scratching sounds in the walls and also what they described as rapping noises. Now, I don't know what that means, but maybe it was like, well, a real slim Jane, please stand up. I would scream. I don't know what rapping noises is, but like maybe crinkle. I don't know. Maybe like wrapping paper. Maybe. Because like, what the fuck else? Like it's it's spelled R-A-P-P-I-N-G. So yeah, then like- Rapping. So will it real slim shady, please stand up. <laughs> so the first rapper in history was in their backyard. Yeah. In their in their walls. In their walls. Scratching. Actually, yeah. Scratching the record yeah. and rapping. <laughs> rapping. That's what they were hearing. <laughs> yes. Nonetheless, the girls had asked Mrs. Parsons, which is Richard's wife, about it, but she was like, Oh yeah, you know, that's just the shoemaker next door. He works all hours of the night. But the noises kept occurring, even on Sunday, the day of the Lord, when the shoemaker wasn't working. Yeah, he was rapping. He's a DJ underground. He is the underground DJ of Cock Street. Of Cock Street. Cock Lane. Cock Lane. Yep. That's Cock. what he's doing. That's what his side job is. And he's DJ Cock. And he's <laughs> DJ Cockmaster. DJ Cockmaster. That is what he That's is. That's what he is. We so don't make the fucking rules. They were startled and their horror was confirmed when both Mr. Parsons and a friend saw this ghostly white figure coming down the stairs just a few days later. Oh, God. Fanny was ready to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. And her baby was almost here. Will had began making arrangements for them to move into a property on Bartlett's Court in Clerkenwell, I believe. Cockenwell. Cockenwell. But when it was time to move in, the property just wasn't ready. So they had to shift gears and move into a temporary small apartment nearby, still on Cock Lane. Cock Lane. On January 25th, Fanny got really sick. She had a really high fever and was in critical state during her pregnancy. Her doctor showed up the very next day and told Will that Fanny had some symptoms of smallpox. Oh, shit. But wasn't entirely sure. Fanny immediately called for her attorney to make sure that if something happened, Will and the baby, because at this point she's like, hopefully I'll make it to give birth. Right. Will and the baby would inherit her estate. This included the inheritance from her older brother who had passed, some land that was owned by him, and anything that her parents had 
given her in life as like, I guess not a dowry because babe was never married, but right. she probably at this point has encompassed Lizzo's. Yeah. I don't know. Prob well, I don't know. Did they not cut her off? I don't know. She still had her brother's inheritance. Okay. So the brother like gave it all to her. Yeah. Okay. On February 2nd, Fanny had died and the baby did not make it. Oh God. Will was the sole beneficiary of Fanny's will. Uh-uh. Yet his life, all his life, their love was all secret. So when he made funeral arrangements, he was scared of being prosecuted by the church. Yeah. So he left her coffin in her gravestone nameless. <gasps> no, he did fucking not. He reached out to her family himself and the entire family had attended her nameless funeral at St. John's Church. Why didn't they handle that? I don't know. But when they got word of the will, they lost it. They tried to block Will from getting anything, but they failed. They pursued legal options, but Will had claimed to have already spent the money because, well, Fanny, she had a lot of debts and he had to pay them off for her. Oh, okay. So he I'm was giving sure. out her money to uh, for other loans. Probably. Yeah, you're giving out loans, bitch. Exactly. Her father, John Lins, took Will to court at the Court of Chancery, but it went nowhere. And Will moved on, became a stockbroker and remarried just a couple years later. Yeah, his resume is top 10. Y'all should hire him as a fucking stock, but what the fuck? Meanwhile, Richard Parsons had failed to repay the loan of 12 guineas, so Will sued him. He managed to pay off those debts. Around the same time, the noises on Cock Lane began picking up again, this time solely focusing on Richard's oldest daughter, Elizabeth Parsons, the one who slept with Fanny just right before she got sick. Elizabeth was having fits and the Parson house was being regularly disturbed by unexplained noises, chairs moving and scratching sounds. And of course, Eminem in the background, <laughs> which her father had thought was due to the interlocking wood that was around her bed. So he actually had a carpenter come mm. and remove it. But things didn't stop. If only they escalated. Richard Parsons seeked help from a preacher at the church, and his name was John Moore, who came to the conclusion that prior to Fanny's death, it was really Liz Lines who was the problem, the spirit, because it didn't start until Fanny moved into the house. Mm. And after Fanny's death, it seemed that maybe she joined her sister. This was a huge spiritual time, and a big belief was that a person's spirit might return from the dead to warn those who were still alive. So these men, Richard and Pastor John, believed that the two spirits were the Lynn sisters trying to give them a certain message. Hmm. So they come up with a communication system. Okay. One knock for yes, two knocks for no. And here's what they find out. The white ghost that was coming down the stairs that Richard Parsons and his friend had saw was Liz warning her sister to run while Will was out of town. <sighs> Through their communication system, they learned that Franny was murdered. <gasps> And possibly so was Liz. Oh. Franny was poisoned with what they believed to be from arsenic poisoning. Oh, shit. It was administered to her by Will two hours before Fanny died. And now the girls, the Lynn sisters, want justice. Richard was tying the pieces together, telling the pastor that this makes a lot of sense. Their sister Anne was complaining because Fanny's coffin was screwed shut at the funeral 
and nobody of the family was able to see their sister's or daughter's body, making logical sense that if Will was afraid she showed no signs of smallpox, the family would never believe that story. Right. If they looked at her body and she didn't have smallpox all over her, then they'd been like, well, how did she die? Right. That's not smallpox. That's not what that looks like. Right. John Moore was stumped. He trusted himself and he trusted Richard, but he needed another person in on this. So he brings in this holy man from the church, Thomas Brown, who came to the Cock Lane house and left 100% convinced that this ghost, this spirit, was real. The story then started spreading like wildfire through London, being published and pointing at Will Kent as a murderer. Mm. Once he read the paper, he wanted to clear his name. So he took a friend, a witness, and went to see John Moore at the church. John showed him the list of questions that he asked the spirits and their response, the one knock or two knock. He documented it all. But he also told him that, you know, I don't think that you're a murderer. To me, the spirit is more of a, quote, something that's masking darker than all the rest. And that if Will would just come to the Parsons house, you might be a witness to the same and convinced of its reality. So now John Moore is like, you know, I actually don't think it's the sisters. Mm. I think that it's an evil demonic being. Yeah. Entity that is acting as them. Right. Trying to, to get you in trouble. Shit up. Yeah. yeah. And he had assumed that whatever this dark being was, was attached to Elizabeth Parsons, who was Richard's daughter. Mm. Will asked for the aid of two of the doctors who treated Fanny on her last days to come to the Cock Lane house with him on the very top floor. And this is so fucked up because they thought it was Elizabeth who was the center of it all. On the very top floor, they had a bed laying in the middle of the room and they had undressed Elizabeth, who was just a young teenager, and laid her on the bed. What? And this was public. Like at this point, it's in the newspapers. There's people there. There's a crowd. What? And the younger Parsons daughter was put to sleep in her room. She had no idea what was going on. And there was an audience sitting and surrounding the bed with Elizabeth naked placed in the center of the room. Why does she have to be naked? Because they were doing a seance. And so you have to be naked And in she a was the center of the seance. I don't know. Okay. Maybe in the 1700s they Maybe. So. What the fuck? There was a relative of Elizabeth there and her, she was her aunt, Mary Frazier, who had attended. And before they began, she was running around the room, like begging, Fanny, come out, put an end to this, Fanny, show yourself, Fanny, come out, Fanny, Fanny, like just like hectic, chaotic. Yeah. But nothing happened. And Pastor Moore was like, Aunt Mary, chill the fuck out. Can you sit down? Like you're too loud. Nobody's going to come out if you're acting like a fool right now. <laughs> no one's going to so walk out. So why don't you leave the room and come back in when, whenever we get it all set up? Right. So they remove everyone from the room and when the spirit is there, they all come back in. Okay. Eventually the noises had started and John Moore began the questions. One knock for yes, two knocks for no. Are you the wife of Mr. Kent? Two knocks. No. Did you die naturally? Two knocks. No. By poison? One knock. Yes. Mm. Did any person other than Mr. Kent administer it? Two knocks. No. The group was stunned. One of the passerby, or not passerby, or, but one of the audience members, I guess you want to call it, this mm -hmm. so fucked up, was yelling, hey, Will, ask this ghost if you shall be hanged. Oh, my God. And Will does. One knock. Yes. Oh, and Will starts screaming, thou art a lying spirit. Thou art not the ghost of my Fanny. She would never have said any such thing. They then removed Elizabeth from the home and into a friend's to 
knock out the fact that maybe it wasn't her possessed, like if the house is possessed or if, if it, it right. was attached to Elizabeth. But the sounds continued even at the other house. So they moved her back into Cock Lane. While Will and Fanny had lived there, they had hired a maid. And her name was like Carol or something, but they called her Carrot because of her red hair. Oh, my God. She had already moved on to a new job. She knew nothing about what was going on in the haunting. Didn't really give a fuck to ever go back there. Yeah, they called her fucking carrot. I wouldn't give a shit either. They wanted her to come back and they wanted to question her if she knew anything about Will poisoning Fanny. Okay. So John Moore invited her to another seance and Will shows up this time. Again, at the beginning, Aunt Mary is running around (laughs) acting like a fool. Fanny, show yourself. Leave my niece alone. Fanny, Fanny. Oh my and God. this time the guys are like, Mary, you're so fucking annoying. Get the fuck Get out of here. out of here. Mary, you're so fucking done. <laughs> so done, Aunt Mary. Get lost. I would deck Aunt Mary. I'm not joking. I just would like deck her. Like everyone's just like very like waiting cool, calm, to and hear. Collected. Granted, the last time there was a 12 year old naked bed on the naked right. on the bed. So I would have probably been a little fired up if I was Aunt Mary yeah. too. But like this time, like there's no one naked. It's Aunt okay. Mary's being crazy. Crazy. So they kick Aunt Mary out into the hallway. Okay, bye, bitch. And this seance was centered on carrots, but carrots wasn't naked. So I don't know why the little girl had to be naked. Okay. And the questions were actually asked by Will Are you my mistress? One knock, followed by scratches what was one knock again yes yes one so yes and then scratches did you like that yeah are you angry with me madam one knock yes will says then i am sure madam you may be ashamed of yourself for i never hurt you in my life seance went on a bit more and when they went home apparently james frazen who was one of will's friends that he brought Mm -hmm. Who was yeah, he just showed up with Will, went home and him and his wife were like tormented by knocks on their door all night long. Fuck that. The story was getting bigger. It was covered in the London Chronicle. It was covered in any newspaper, any whatever you want to call the reports, not magazines. They didn't have magazines, but like it was everywhere. Yeah. It was all in the press. People were coming all over the UK to Cock Lane to talk to the spirits. Oh, great. Richard Parsons was making a fortune. Yeah. Charging people to enter his home to ask what he was now calling scratchy fanny questions. Scratchy fanny. That's the best we could do, guys. Scratchy fanny. Scratchy fanny. Yeah. So a scratchy ass is what that also means. I would have at least called it the cock, the big fat fucking Big fat fucking cock ghost. (laughs) What the fuck? Elizabeth was once again removed from the Parsons home and placed into a different house. With Aunt Mary. Hopefully. (laughs) Did they throw Aunt Mary out? And Will was trying desperately to clear his name. And Pastor Moore was believing more so that this was really, truly an imposter spirit. Mm. Not if anything, it was Liz, his ex-wife, who was pissed her sister got with the love of her life. And for that, she tried to ruin his name. She was like, I'm going to fuck with this guy. Okay, then I fuck with her. Will pleaded for John Moore to write up a redaction or an affidavit of what he really believed and knew. John Moore declined and then it got worse. Every newspaper you can think was covering the rumor that Fanny's body was removed from her coffin (gasps) and that her restless spirit, wherever it may be, not at the church, is why she's knocking. Holy shit. So Will walked his ass over to the church gravesite, had her dug up with John Moore there to witness. Just John Moore? And there lying in the coffin was Fanny's decomposed body. Decomposed. Yeah. Yeah. And this was just too much for John Moore. So he published a retraction. 
He says, quote, injustice to the person whose reputation has been attacked in a most gross manner by the pretended ghost in Cock Lane to check the credulity of the weak, to defeat the attempts of the malicious and to prevent further imposition. On account of this absurd phenomenon, I do hereby certify that though from the several attendances on this occasion, I have not been able to point out how and in what manner those knockings and scratchings of the supposed ghosts were contrived, performed, or continued. Yet that I am convinced that those knockings and scratchings were the effects of some artful, wicked contrabalance, and that I was, in a more special manner, convinced of its being such, on the first of this month, when I attended with several persons of rank and character who assembled at the Reverend Mr. Aldrich's Clerkenwell in order to examine into this iniquitous imposition upon the public. Since which time I have not seen the child nor heard the noises and think myself in duty bound to add that the injured person who presents to hear himself accused by the pretended ghost has not, by which is will, has not by his behavior given the least ground of suspicion, but has preserved that becoming steadfast, which nothing I am persuaded but innocence could inspire. I have no idea what the fuck he just said. Basically, he was like, I don't think it's Fanny. I don't think it's Liz. I think it's demonic. I don't think Elizabeth is possessed. And Will is innocent. He shows no other signs but innocence. Okay. But this was not enough for Will. He had enough. So he went to police and five people were charged with conspiracy and defamation. Richard Parsons, his wife, Pastor John Moore. Oh, Crazy Aunt Mary. John Moore stood up and Crazy Aunt Mary. I knew that one was coming. And a tradesman named Richard James, who none of the sources talked about him. I have no idea how he's involved, what he did. Maybe he, he was. He just the, got drunk and talked shit. Maybe I he bet. was the knocker behind maybe, the Maybe, yeah. The trial was held and it took 90 minutes for the judge to sum the case up and only 15 minutes for the jury to reach a verdict of guilty for all five defendants. What? It was believed to have been a retaliation of the lawsuit from Will Kent to Richard Parsons for not paying back the 12 guineas loan. The judge stated, sorry, big quote again. This is like what they got sentenced to. Uh The court choosing that Mr. Kent, who had been so much injured on the occasion, should receive some reparation by punishment of the offenders, deferred giving judgment for seven or eight months in hopes that the parties might make it up in the meantime. Accordingly, the clergyman and tradesman agreed to pay Mr. Kent a round sum. Some say between 500 and 600 euros to purchase their pardon and were therefore dismissed with a severe reprimand. The father was ordered to be set in the pillory three times in one month. Once at the end of Cock Lane, Elizabeth, his wife, to be imprisoned one year and Mary Fraser six months in Bridwell with hard labor. Mary's the only one that got a hard labor. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? The father appeared to be out of his mind at the time he was first to standing in the pillory. The execution of that part of his sentence was deferred to another day when, as well as the other day of his standing there, the populace took so much compassion on him that instead of using him ill, they made a handsome subscription for him. Whatever the fuck that means. No, that is not English. Anyway, the ghost on Cock Lane was one giant hoax. Yeah. And that is what I have for you today. All over alone. 12 12 guineas. guineas. 12 guineas. 12 dollar bills, How y'all. much is, uh, I wonder how much that's worth now. Maybe that's like a fuck ton. But I could also see this being that William Kent was a very powerful man. Mm-hmm. He was wealthy. 
Yeah. And maybe Fanny was obsessed, obsessed with him. Yeah. And that's why she moved in with her sister when she was pregnant. She killed her sister. You know what? I was about to say that. And then Will finds out. Kills her. Kills her. Yeah. I don't know about the fucking ghost thing. Maybe that was just a big ploy to make money. And maybe and he didn't piss even. him off. Or maybe Richard Parsons overheard something when they were living there. When yeah. he found out that Fanny killed Liz, he was like, I'm going to fucking kill you, bitch. Like, right. Or Aunt Mary dead, clearly. Aunt Manny. Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary. Fanny, get out of here. Show yourself, Fanny. Poor, but really, the poor Aunt Mary, she was like sold that like her, her fucking niece was getting attacked. Yeah, and, and poor Elizabeth. Yeah, like, poor that Elizabeth. That is so fucked up. Yeah, no, they had to like, really, she had to be naked, but carrots didn't have to. What the fuck? Yeah. Okay, in today's money, 12 guineas, which I don't even know how to begin to spell. Okay, like but new guinea. How much was a guinea worth in 1700 in today's money? It would be equal to one pound and five cents. That's not right. In 1700? Wait, dollar. it's a point zero 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 one for a US dollar. Okay. So 14 cents. Okay, Wait, if that's the 12? truth. Then we've got to have. There's no way it. There's inflation. Like we know that there's no way that that's even possible. Yeah, I have no idea. Maybe Google's not understanding. But it like the guinea coins were made of real gold. Yeah. So they probably were worth a lot. A lot. I mean, twelve gold coins. Yeah. Like Like, and it's telling us that it's like not even a cent. Like damn, that's not right. Yeah, that can't be right. Yeah, literally, look at what happened to the U.S. dollar. Here's a currency converter from 1270. What kind of money did they even use back there to 2017? What the fuck? Please select a year. 1750s. They have this on Goog. Shilling. Oh no, you can only do shillings, pence, or pounds. What did you? How many pounds was it? For okay, here I have shilling on here actually too. Okay, 21 shillings in 1717. So what's 21? Oh, wait, I can only get to 19 shillings. Okay. How many pounds? I can write that one in. A guinea was worth a pound, which at the time was equivalent to 20 shillings. So 12 pounds. We'll go from that. Oh, in 2017, this was worth approximately 1,400 euros. In 1750, you could buy one of the following with 12 pounds. Okay, there we go. One horse or two cows, 25 stones of wool or seven bucks of wheat. I just, for some reason, feel like that we're not like that's that can't be right. This, this can't be right. Yeah, fuck this. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why Google isn't understanding today. Like of all the times, we need you right now, Goog. Like, and here's this: How much was a shilling worth in 1750? In the 1700s, 12 pence equal a shilling and 20 shillings a pound. No, I what, need you. What US the fuck dollar. is that? What the fuck what is, is that? A pence? What is what? I've never even heard of that before. There's so I think about that all the time. Think about how much currency is in the world now that it's regulated. Think about when it wasn't, because back then they were just trained shit, like mm-hmm. way back in the day, like think of evolution of trade and money right. and worth of things. Like at what point did we say, this is how much this is worth? Yeah, I don't know. A, p- a piece of paper. <laughs> Isn't that such a bullshit when you think about it? Like literally our entire lives revolve around this fake thing. Yeah. A lot of fake things, time, money. Yeah, it's fucked up. The, the two things that are like the most essential to survive time and money, you got to have a ton of them both and nothing. And they're fake. They're, they're made literally up. man-made. That's control, baby. No, that's control. That's capitalism, honey. Yeah. That's what it is. That's what it do be. It is, it is, it is. That was a good case. <laughs> Thanks. What do you have? Oh, I've got part two. 
Oh my God, I forgot. I, I can't believe I'm getting it so quick. I know. Because we're recording. Two. This is two days you after got I heard it literally part one. two days. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right in. If you have not listened to episode 142, which is part one, stop right now and head over there before right you now. listen to this episode because you're going to literally have no fucking clue what is going on. I can't wait. As for everyone that has already listened and wanted to beat me the fuck up last week, <laughs> let's have a little recap of part one before we begin. December 16th, 2000. 31-year-old Mike Williams goes missing while on a solo duck hunt in the early morning hours at Lake Seminole, specifically in an area called Stump Field. He was supposed to be coming home before noon as he and his wife, Denise, were going to spend their wedding anniversary a few towns over, just like as a staycation moment. They found his boat, his Bronco, his shotgun, decoys, later his waders, his jacket, his hat, and hunting license, but they never found Mike. The original theory was that he hit a stump in the dark and was thrown from the boat and drowned because of his waders, eventually being eaten by alligators and wildlife, hence why nobody ever surfaced. His wife, Denise, declared him legally dead, citing that the waders were proof of his death seven months after his disappearance, collecting his $1.7 million insurance policies. She went back to work as a CPA at FSU and continued raising their daughter, Ansley, in the home that Mike had bought for her to grow up in. Cheryl, Mike's mother, and Nick, his brother, did not believe that Mike had died as a result of an accident because nothing was adding up. It took years, but finally, investigators had listened. This pissed many people off, especially Denise, his wife, because she felt that it was an invasion of her privacy, harmful for their now five-year-old Ansley, and just drawing this unwanted attention. Everyone called Cheryl crazy and in denial, but the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or the FDLE, determined that Cheryl was right. Nothing made sense. They, using Cheryl's research, determined that this was not likely that Mike had been in an accident was eaten by these alligators, as stated on his death certificate. However, because none of the evidence was collected from the scene or investigated, as it was originally a search and rescue mission, quickly the case went cold once again. Investigators felt that the truth would eventually come to light, but Cheryl, Mike's badass of a mother, added the pressure to speed this up. Once they stopped their first criminal investigation in Mike's death, which went on from 2004 to 2006, the FDLE and the Jackson County Sheriff's Department changed Mike's classification to a suspicious missing person and left the case open because of the persons of interest that they had in his case. Everyone knew who they were talking about. Denise and her new husband, the same man who sold Mike his insurance policies and Mike's best friend, Brian Winchester. Denise and Brian got married in 2005 after keeping their dating relationship extremely low-key and private. The two claimed that they fell in love while helping each other move forward in wake of Mike's death. And Brian and his wife, Kathy, had divorced a few years prior and Denise supposedly had been like dating around publicly, mm -hmm. but many people debate this. Brian moved into Mike and Denise's home and assumed the role of Ansley's father, raising her alongside his children. I think it was two sons, but there's like some sources say one son, some say two sons, children, whatever, whom he had shared custody with Kathy. So before we jump into the kidnapping that blew Mike's case wide open that I left you on a cliffhanger of last Huge week. Huge cliffhanger. 
Let's talk about what we know about Denise Williams. Denise Merrill met Mike Williams at North Florida Christian High School when they were about 15 or so, and the two started dating. Denise was a cheerleader. Mike was a football star. From the jump, they were madly in love and knew that they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. Denise's best friend, Kathy, started dating Mike's best friend, Brian, and these four were inseparable all the way through college graduation, their weddings, and having their children. The four went on double dates, couples trips, and even family trips together. Like, I'm not talking about with their kids. Like, I'm talking about all families. Even having their children around the exact same time. Kathy and Brian, I like I said, I believe had one son around the same time that Ansley was born. Mike loved Denise and was an amazing husband, like I talked about in the beginning of this and in part one. He would drop anything and everything he was doing to go help his wife. And everyone that worked with Mike knew this very well. Almost every single day at work, Mike would get a call and he would rush out of the office and return a short while later, picking up exactly where he left off. On the Dateline NBC episode that I watched about Mike's case, a few of his co-workers and friends were interviewed about these instances. They described the same things that I did in part one, which is like lunch and dinner and grocery store and letting her take a nap, but even more in depth. Explaining that from the outside looking in, Denise was pretty needy and... Some would say controlling of Mike, even before Ansley was born. She would bring her car to the gas station across the street from Mike's office anytime she needed gas and call him and he would rush out there and pump the gas for her. Oh my God. His co-workers had this running joke where after Mike would get this call and rush out without really saying anything, they would all place bets on what it was Denise needed this time. And that's just how it went. Denise was also very particular about her image and how people viewed her. She cared greatly about what people thought and said about her at all times. Always well-dressed, always put together, holding herself to a certain level of class, really tight-laced, but not in the way of wanting all of the attention to be on her, more like not wanting to draw any attention where someone could have reason to talk bad about her. Okay. Denise was also a very devout Christian and raised in a very strict religious home. Interesting. Which played a really big role in everything I just described about her. She wanted to be viewed as a good Christian woman, wife, and mother and daughter and be highly regarded within her church. If anything threatened this image of her, she would be distraught, which made her turn into a little bit more of a private person the older she got. She just like didn't want people talking about her or want to say something that she shouldn't have said. But Denise was a really good friend wife, daughter, in person. She was always kind. She was easy to be around, not judgy, like really pretty easygoing and always willing to be there for those who needed her. It was only her image that she was particular about. When Mike disappeared, Denise was broken and did not have it in her to get up and get ready to her standards to be able to be out in public for months, which is why there is really not a lot that can be described about her during the first seven months after Mike went missing. She needed to grieve in private, collect herself and figure out where to go from there and focus on her and Mike's daughter, Ansley. Around the time that Mike's waiters were found, Denise asked Patty Ketchum, who was Mike's boss's wife, okay. to drive her and Ansley up to Stumpfield and sit in the car with Ansley so that she could have just a few minutes alone for a private memorial by herself with Mike and God. Patty said, of course, 
I'm going to come pick you up and we'll go there. So she picks her up, picks both of them up, drives up there at the lake. Denise gets out of the car and she had brought this little like letter and a flower and she took it out there and sat with it on the water and just left it there for Mike in the water. When Denise returned to her car approximately 30 or so minutes later, Patty could tell that she had been sobbing, like trying to keep it together when she got in the car for the sake of Ansley. Yeah. Not seeing her that torn up. Denise said that she had to do this to bring herself enough closure to start forging on. A month later, Denise went before the court using the waiters as proof, declaring Mike Williams legally dead and collected the life insurance policies that he had left behind to take care of her and Ansley. Between 2001 and 2004, Denise had dated a few other men. By 2005, she and Brian married. Brian and Kathy had already been going through a really tough time in their marriage in the years, honestly, leading up to Mike's death. And really, no matter what they tried, it just wasn't working. So in 2001, they divorced. It was unclear or it is unclear with Brian about if he dated other women after the divorce between the divorce and his new marriage to Denise. But it is known that he was like sleeping around hardcore. Okay, before Denise. Yeah, before Denise, after Kathy. But what was really alarming out of all the things that I just listed that are already alarming was the fact that from the time Mike's death was ruled an accident seven months after his disappearance, Brian and Denise refused to speak about Mike's mysterious disappearance again with anyone. They were completely lawyered up from day one. Hmm. Just after the FDLE and Jackson County Sheriff's Department closed their investigation into Mike's case as suspicious in October of 2007, Cheryl and Nick were going through what they had and just like trying to sort it all out so they could gather more information and new leads to once again gain traction and get the law enforcement agencies to take the case once again. So as they're doing this, they stumble upon pictures. Okay, and they're going through these pictures and. Nick sees this photo of Mike and in it, he's holding this 22 caliber pistol that was inherited by Mike after the passing of his father. It was a family heirloom and they realized that they had no idea where it was. This is very significant because when Mike was declared dead, Denise had returned all of his hunting equipment, weapons and firearms to his family. But that wasn't there. But the Ruger was never returned. They contacted Denise, despite the fact that they were not on speaking terms at all, and asked if she had it. Like, do you know where it's at? Like, we just realized we never got it back. And if you have it, can we please have it back? It's a family heirloom. Denise was very defensive about this and adamant that she did not have this gun, refused to elaborate point blank period. That was it. So after searching through more and more photos and documents, they come across the pistol's serial number and they contacted the Jackson County Sheriff's Department to report it missing. The investigator from Jackson County then took this report and passed it on to the ATF and the ATF picks the fuck up and goes to Mike's house where Denise and Brian are now living and interviews them about this missing firearm because that's a big deal. Yeah. Again, they denied that they knew where it was and they made sure that their lawyer was present for all of this. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's sauce. That's sauce, Ladies guys. and gents. But barely a week later, despite the fact that they claimed they had no fucking idea where this thing was, Brian and Denise's attorney delivers the Ruger to the FDLE because they had mysteriously, miraculously found it. Oh, did they? The gun was sent to the state forensic lab for DNA testing, and it was confirmed to be Mike's gun. But 
That was all that they released about the findings. When this did not work out as a way to get Brian and Denise to be forced to talk about Mike's disappearance, Cheryl and Nick had another trick up their sleeve. In 2008, the Florida Department of Financial Services Division of Insurance Fraud, or DIF, and the FDLE began investigating those $1.7 million worth of insurance policies that Denise had collected and Brian had sold to Mike. But they were in a massive race against time because the statute of limitations in Florida law on insurance fraud is only five years, a.k.a. it would have expired in 2005. However, in special circumstances such as this one, it can be extended extended by three years, a.k.a. 2008. 2008, a.k.a. right when the fuck this is happening. Yeah. The FFWCC, which was the Florida, I can't remember exactly what it was, like Florida Wildlife, the people that handled the first search and rescue okay. and who Mike was reported missing to, came forward with the DIF and the FDLE stating that if they had been aware of the troubling and serious circumstances that have come to light, coupled with the fact that there was such a large insurance policy on him that had only been purchased a year prior, the original investigation would have been handled completely differently and as a criminal investigation. Their case against Denise was centered around the fact that when she petitioned the court to have Mike legally declared dead, she only mentioned the Kansas City Life Insurance Company policy, which was the one that Mike had gotten from Brian, which is the okay. biggest one. That was the million dollar one. However, there were two other policies that Mike had through other companies and people that Denise and Brian claimed they had no idea he had kept and continued paying on. As the original purpose of getting that $1 million policy through Brian was because of Ansley's birth, which is typical once you have a child. But Mike told Brian that he was not planning on growing those original ones that he had any further, only focusing on this new one because it would be the biggest. Unfortunately, though investigators believed that it was actually Denise paying these policies through Mike's account, Count, they had no way to prove this. Shit. Meaning that Denise could just as easily use what they're using for the prosecution as her defense, claiming that, yep, I had no idea about these policies. I had no idea he was paying them until after he was legally dead, which is why I did not mention them when I petitioned the court. Because of this, the case gets dropped. Fuck. Once again, Cheryl and Nick were back to square one and investigators were at this roadblock and... This is really where we left off in part one, 2012, when Cheryl wrote over 200 letters to Florida governor at the time, Rick Scott, only to learn that they were being forwarded to the FDLE. What the public and really Mike's family did not know was that investigators from Jackson County Sheriff's Department and the FDLE were silently still investigating Mike's case. They had to be extremely careful and lay beyond low as they waited for the break that they knew would eventually come. There is only so much pressure that people can take and Cheryl would not let up. She just went harder and harder. And if there is one thing that we all know for sure, it's that a dark secret being stored deep in someone's soul will eat at them. Yep. And everyone around them until it manifests into a physical, mental, or emotional break that in most cases starts to present itself in the form of paranoia. 
on the morning of Friday, August 5th, 2016. Denise woke up, sent Ansley off to school, and got herself ready to go to work at FSU. Just after 9 a.m., Denise walked out of her home, loaded into her car, placed her work bag and purse in the passenger seat of her Suburban, started it, and buckled up, pulling out of her driveway. Once she got out of the subdivision and onto the main road, as she did every single morning, Denise picked up her phone to call her sister for their daily morning drive to work chats. But she pauses as she had noticed something in her rearview mirror. A man dressed in all black sitting in the captain's seats directly behind her. In her car? In her car. They made eye contact just as Denise felt something press up against her right rib cage. It was a gun. Before Denise could even react, the man grabbed her phone and began screaming at her to follow his directions. Denise was in complete shock, not only because her entire life was on the line at that moment, but also because she knew that voice in those eyes. It was her husband, Brian Winchester. Oh my God. Brian demanded that Denise drive to a remote location, but Denise refused, knowing that if she followed his orders, she would likely be killed. So she decided to immediately pull off in the CVS parking lot, pulling her car into the space that was closest to the front door and covered in security cameras and good lighting. Brian said that they could stay there as long as she did not cry, freak out, or attract attention. Denise asked why he was doing this and if this was the day that the two of them died, to which he responded, just me. Denise was able to calm Brian down enough to remove the gun and gain his trust that she would not run away or freak out so they could just talk this out. Like, what the fuck is going on? Because you see, in 2012, when Cheryl was writing those letters, lobbying for Mike, getting the story on national TV and turning up that pressure, Denise and Brian had very privately separated which was claimed to be because of affairs that both of them were having and Brian's struggle with an addiction to sex. They kept this from the public and their friends and family for years and tried to work this out between them. But in 2015, Denise filed for divorce behind Brian's back. He opposed it and had to be court-ordered to comply with the divorce filings. A part of his order was that Brian was to provide an appraisal of their shared home, a.k.a. Mike's home, and file it with the court by August 5th, 2016, the same day that he had snuck into her car and held a gun to her. For 45 minutes in that CVS parking lot, Brian told Denise that he had no choice. She had blocked him on everything and would not speak to him. He didn't want a divorce, and without her, he had nothing to live for. His mother had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. He had just lost custody of his son due to his sex addiction, and it had all come to a head. Brian said that he didn't want to kill Denise. He just wanted to talk to her before he took his own life. Denise said that she watched as Brian calm down and went from being hysterical and delirious to apologizing, scared, and realizing that he had lost his own fucking sanity. She promised him that she would never tell a soul about this, about what he had done, as long as he had gotten help and then maybe they could talk through their divorce. Brian agreed and apologized profusely as she calmly drove him back to his truck that was parked just a mile or so from the home. 
Denise watched as Brian went to the back and got some stuff out of the trunk, which is where he had been hiding. It was a tan sheet, a tarp, a spray bottle that she said smelled like bleach and a hammer and loaded it into his car. Denise left and immediately raced to the Jackson County Sheriff's Department to report this and get to a safe place. Units were dispatched that very second and sent to Brian's apartment where he was arrested and charged with kidnapping, domestic assault and armed burglary. Burglary. Thank you. (laughs) In order to file the report, Denise would have to be interviewed in the room by investigators about what exactly happened on that day to put in the report, give her statements, all the things. But what Denise did not know was that behind that two-way mirror, listening in, was an FDLE agent working Mike's case. What they wanted to know was why did it get to this point and if it had anything to do with Mike Williams. Investigators knew that this would be their one and only shot of getting anything from Denise about Mike. They had tried several times to interview her in the past years, and she would never talk. They had to play this right. They had to keep her talking, and they had to keep it in the realm of how this kidnapping could possibly relate to Mike's case. Investigators began steering the conversation about Brian's break, asking questions about his behavior in the past, like, has Brian ever done anything like this before? Did you fear Brian before, after, or during your marriage? Did you truly believe he was going to kill you today? Do you think Brian Winchester would ever be capable of murder? Denise said that she had never seen a violent side of Brian. Though she questioned if he would have actually killed her, she was in fear for her daughter and herself if this ever happened again. At which point investigators brought in the FDLE officer and began setting up for the main questions they had. If Brian was capable of being this impulsive and this violent, To his own wife, do you think it would be possible that he would have killed her first husband, Mike, his best friend? Asking if she thought that Brian could have possibly followed Mike up to Stumpfield that morning or even secretly gone hunting with him. Because if his sex addiction was that bad, it was that serious, and he secretly had eyes on her for all of these years, wouldn't it be possible that Brian would have had enough motive to kill Mike just to have Denise? Denise denied anything and everything that they tried to bring up about Mike, trying her best to redirect the conversation any and every time Mike was brought up. Eventually, the investigator asked her what she thinks happened to Mike. Like, truly, Denise, what do you think happened to your first husband? To which Denise responded, he hit a stump. He was thrown from the boat. His waders drowned him in that lake and he was eaten by alligators. When asked why she believes this so wholeheartedly, despite the fact that there's evidence that that is not the case, she simply responded, quote, that is just what I believe, end quote. At this point, they knew she is not giving them anything. She would not be talking. So they asked her what she wanted to be done about Brian, to which she requested a protection order for her and Ansley, saying that he needed to be held with no bond. Investigators ended their conversation by telling Denise that they had Brian in custody a few rooms over, and they're about to go over there and interview him about every single thing they just talked about. But asked her one last time, is there Anything that we should know, any inklings, any little things that you might have seen or thought over the years about Brian that could possibly have anything to do with Mike. 
She said no. She left and her requests were honored. Wow. At the trial, Denise pushed for life in prison for Brian. He pled no contest. And on October 17th, 2017, despite Denise's request, Brian was only sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping to be followed by a 15 year probation. There was no mention of Mike at all during this trial or anything relating to his case. Denise and Brian were issued an emergency divorce on the day that this all happened, not the trial when the kidnapping happened, effective immediately. And that was that. But less than 24 hours later, breaking news poured into every single home in the Tallahassee area, shocking the entire city to its core with an emergency press conference. The FDLE special agent in charge, Mark Perez, took the microphone and announced to the public that at the end of a dead-end road in northern Leon County, just five miles away from his childhood home, the body of Mike Williams had been (laughs) discovered in a shallow grave. I have chills. 98% of his bones were recovered, along with his wedding band that was still on the bones of his left finger. Oh, my God. That served as his identifying marker. And DNA testing confirmed that, yes, these were the remains of Mike Williams. But that was all. An investigation opened, but it was strictly withheld from the public with a gag order. On May 8th, 2018, police walked into the FSU offices of 48-year-old Denise Williams and placed her under arrest. As just minutes before, a grand jury had indicted Denise Williams on charges of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. It just so happened to be Ansley's 19th birthday. Wow. So what the fuck happened and how did we get here? On August 5th, 2016, when Brian Winchester was arrested for kidnapping Denise, he told investigators that he could no longer hold this. It had been eating at him for 16 years and he needed to get it off his chest. He was at the end of his road. So here's the truth, according to Brian Winchester. It all started one spring break when they were all in college. Mike was unable to go to Panama City Beach with them. So it was just Brian, Kathy and Denise with a group of more friends. On this trip, Brian and Kathy invited Denise to have a threesome with them. And she agreed. Also, this was confirmed by Kathy and photos. This was not a one time thing, though. It actually happened many times after as well. Also backed up by Kathy and dated photos without Mike's knowledge. But... That was not enough for Brian and Denise. They wanted Kathy out of the picture and began having a full-blown affair in 1997. During the day while Mike was at work, Brian would park his car at the church just a few streets over and walk a mile to Mike and Denise's home where they would have sex. Because of Mike's job, he was often required to go to these conferences that were like a week long and in different states or in like vacation spots. So during the day when Denise would go with him, she would just like be able to chill and do whatever, be on vacation while he went to the conferences. Well, Denise started using her card to buy a separate room for her and Brian and pay for Brian to come out there and sit in their room together in luxury hotels paid for by Mike all fucking day. Oh, my God. And they did this many times. Kathy and Brian's marriage was falling apart, and Kathy knew that Brian and Denise were having an affair. She just knew. She really didn't give a fuck because she wanted a divorce, too. 
1999, Denise and Brian started talking really seriously about their relationship and how they would get out of their marriages. Because Denise was such a devout Christian and her family was adamantly against divorce due to their religious beliefs, she suggested a plan. The two couples would go together on their planned trip to the Gulf of Mexico and go boating. That was they were going to go deep sea fishing while they were there. They would stage, her and Brian, an accident that would kill both Mike and Kathy, leaving them as the only survivors. But Brian did not like this plan. Though he wanted to be with Denise and divorce Kathy, he didn't like have anything about divorcing. He was like, it's not a big deal. Like me and Kathy have already talked about getting divorced. And I definitely don't want to take the mother of my children away from them. Right. I don't want her dead. I love her. Like, I just don't want to be married to her anymore. They decided to instead stage a robbery gone wrong at Mike's office one day after he returned to work after serving, cleaning, eating dinner with Denise and Ansley. But then they decided that there's too many cameras, too many logistics, not going to be possible. A few weeks later, Brian and Mike had gone on a hunting trip to Arkansas. During this, Mike expressed to Brian his feelings about more like his worries about his marriage, saying that Denise would not even look at him for over a year. They had not had sex in over a year, and he could tell Denise was very unhappy. Mike said that he just didn't know where he went wrong, and he decided to plan this wedding anniversary trip in Apalachicola to try and rekindle their sex life and plan for their future, just try and make Denise feel something again. Mike loved Ansley, loved kids, and he wanted to give Ansley a sibling. He wanted to provide Denise with the life that she had always dreamt of and that he had promised her. And he just wanted to make his family happy. All the while, Brian quietly sat there listening to Mike pour out his heart, knowing the truth. Before their trip ended in this Arkansas hunting trip, they were hunting one last day when Mike accidentally stepped into quicksand in his waders. He was sinking faster than Brian could get him out because the waders were suction cupping him. Finally, they were able to somehow free Mike with the help of like people around them, I guess, when it hit Brian that an accident like that would kill Mike and they wouldn't have to be directly responsible for his death. This accident freaked Mike the fuck out, like big time when it happened. And this is when he asked Brian about getting that larger insurance policies and implemented very careful, strict rules when he's hunting. He did not want to leave Ansley without a father. And he spoke about this with everyone. Meanwhile, Brian told Denise about his idea and about what had happened. She loved it. The two of them knew in order for this to happen, they would have to set the date right then and there. Stop all contact with each other. Do not see each other for a few months before and a few months after Mike's death. So they worked out their plan. Mike and Brian would go hunting in the early morning hours one day when no one was around in a secluded location. And then somehow Brian would accidentally knock Mike into the water while he had his waders on. Brian would try and save Mike, but it would just be too late and he would drown. To cover their own tracks, Brian would get Kathy extremely drunk and possibly drug her the night before so that she would sleep through him getting up and going hunting. He would plan to go hunting with his father-in-law, but cancel it just minutes before he was supposed to be there because he would, quote, oversleep and be too hungover to go, giving himself an alibi. Denise would be the only one to know that Mike would be going hunting with Brian that morning as they scheduled it the night before and she would push back their leaving time for the trip to make sure he could go. 
Brian talked to Mike the night before on their landline to let him know that he had broken his cell phone. So don't worry about calling me. Let's just meet at Stumpfield in the morning at this time. And Mike agreed. As for Denise's alibi, she would make sure that she made several calls from the home that morning and make sure that she was seen by reliable witnesses during the time that the murder took place. If Denise did not hear from Brian before noon, that means that she would be in the clear to call her father for help. And Brian would sneak back home, covering his tracks, and get into the bed with Kathy before she woke up. This was their perfect crime. And Brian told the entire story to the jury as the prosecution's star witness when the case went to trial on the 18th anniversary of Mike's murder. On December 16th, 2000, Mike met with Brian at the boat ramp at Stump Field. They had gotten into Mike's boat, and after a bit, Brian talked Mike into putting on his waders, which he had stopped doing after that incident in the quicksand because he was like, I'm, I don't need to be wearing them in the boat. It's just right. dangerous. A few minutes later, Mike stood up after putting on the waders to bend over and get his shotgun from its case. This is when Brian quickly took the opportunity to shove him out of the boat. Thinking that Mike would immediately sink and drown like he had planned, he watched as Mike struggled in the water in the darkness. Brian realized that he really wasn't struggling. He was taking off his waders and jacket and grabbed onto a stump. At this point, Brian had already restarted the boat and was circling Mike. Both were panicking and confused. Mike began screaming for help as loud as he could. Brian panicked, lifted his shotgun, aiming it at his best friend since he was 15 years old, and fired it at him one time, hitting him directly in the face and killing him instantly. Brian said that he then drug Mike's body to the west edge of the lake, leaving the boat there, and quickly put him into the dog crate in the back of his truck, cleaning up his tracks and speeding away, taking Mike's body to the place that he was discovered, just five miles from their childhood homes. He cleaned out his truck, returned home to Kathy before she awoke. He got ready for the day with her. He picked up their kids. They went to a family Christmas party where the news broke about Mike's disappearance. Immediately upon learning the news, Brian's father gave him a change of clothes and said, get in the car. We're going to find Mike. Wow. Brian sobbed on the stand during this testimony about this part of the story saying the only reason they stayed through the harsh weather and so late was because his father refused to give up on Mike. He didn't want him to be hurt and stranded in the cold because he knew he wouldn't be expecting it. It came out of nowhere. And it was all because Mike was like a son to him. How fucked up is that? So fucked up. Which is why Brian had to follow his father and happened to be the ones that stumbled upon Mike's boat. Brian admitted that he was the one that had planted the hat during one of the searches since investigators were starting to get suspicious when they didn't find anything. As for the waiters, he claimed that he had no idea how they got there. According to Brian, he and Denise took it really slow and hid their relationship for years using other relationships and public hookups as a cover-up until enough time had passed. Brian also stated that he never told Denise the extent of what actually went down that day. He tried to, but she refused to listen to the truth. She didn't care. Their main goal was to be married so that they could be protected by spousal law. And every time they got together prior to their marriage, they would check each other for spy equipment. When their marriage started to fall apart, Denise swore that she would never tell another soul about the truth of what happened to Mike and Brian did the same. But Brian didn't want to risk it. 
He wanted to stay married, even if they were separated, to protect themselves. And when she filed secretly for divorce, blocking him from all contact, he lost his shit. They were both incredibly paranoid about the other turning on them. And Cheryl, being taken seriously by investigators, only made their paranoia worse. Brian told investigators that he would show them where Mike's remains were in the entirety of the story that I just told you that he said in front of the entire court for a plea deal. They told Cheryl that it was like making a deal with a devil. But if they wanted to know the truth of what happened that day and to lay Mike to rest officially and formally, this would be their only way to do that which is why he served as their star witness, got the emergency divorce, and revealed the truth. Though he had passed polygraphs and was essentially the entire case for the prosecution, as there was no physical or forensic evidence that could link either of them, not even a phone call because the phone records were so old at this point, to Mike's disappearance and murder, it was a very stressful trial. The defense used everything that Brian had said against him, asking the jury if they were really going to believe a man that just tried to kidnap his wife and kill her with tarps and bleach in the car. Do you really think that a small little good Christian woman like Denise would be capable of planning such a horrific crime? And he even admitted it. She did not know the full story of what happened. When the defense called Brian to the stand, they asked him, was Denise with you on the morning of December 16th, 2000? No. Did Denise pull the trigger, killing Mike Williams on the morning of December 16th, 2000? No. Did Denise know the location of Mike's body? No. Was Denise with you at all when you pulled the trigger, killed your best friend, covered your tracks, buried his body, and cleaned your truck on the day of December 16th, 2000? To which he said, she was in my head with her words behind me, beside me, in front of me, all around me, the entire time. Wow. The prosecution posed the theory that Denise could have been the one that had staged the waiters on the day that Patty took her out to have a solo memorial for Mike. Brian also cleared up the fact that it was Denise that continued paying those insurance policies because she knew she would need at least $50,000 to get her through the first year without Mike. Next, the prosecution showed video footage of Denise learning that her husband's body was discovered and how he was murdered, to which she showed no emotion at all. She did not ask a single question, just matter-of-factly said thank you and accepted the news. They also played audio from a recorded phone call between Kathy, Brian's ex-wife, Denise's former best friend, and Denise from a sting operation that they had ran, partnering with Kathy, where Kathy tells Denise... If I would have known, I would have told Mike so that he would have survived because I know what happened. To which Denise said, what do you mean? And hung up the phone. Wrapping all of this up by saying that she had the motive. It was money, lust, and maintaining her image because in the eyes of God, it would be better to be a widower than a divorcee. After just four days of testimony, the jury was off to deliberate. This was 100% up in the air, a 50-50 shot either way. And Mike's family, and truly like the prosecution, really felt that this was not going to turn out in their favor. This was bold, and they didn't really have undisputable evidence in their corner. It was in the hands of the jury to decide if Denise Williams was guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. After just eight hours of deliberation, the jury returned their verdict, guilty 
on all charges. Good shit. Denise did not speak or argue with anything on her own behalf. She just sat emotionless through it all as Cheryl Williams read her victim impact statement about losing both her son and her granddaughter to Denise Williams. In February of 2019, Denise was sentenced to life in prison at Florida Women's Reception Center. Five months later, Denise signed all of Mike's insurance money and estate that was originally due to her as the beneficiary over to Ansley. As Cheryl, Mike's mother, agreed to not press charges for insurance fraud against Denise so long as Ansley got it all and did not use any of that money to pay for her mother's legal fees. And Ansley does maintain that her mother is innocent. If Ansley were to use any of this money or estate to help her mom out in any way, she would owe the state of Florida $150,000 in fines and be sued. In January of 2020, Denise Williams appealed her conviction and life sentence, arguing that there is no evidence that she was involved in the murder of Mike Williams at all. In November of 2020, the murder conviction was overturned. However, her other charges were still upheld, which means that she has to serve 30 years in prison. And that is the case of Mike Williams. How hard is it to just get a fucking divorce? You'd rather be a murderer and spend eternity in hell than to just get a divorce and ask for forgiveness? What what type of fucking wackos? Brian's weak. Is Brian's Brian a is. weak pussy ass bitch. Not even a pussy because a pussy's strong. Fuck that. He's a little a little limp dick. <laughs> he is. Little fucking limp dick. He really is. And like acting like she was in my ear. I was doing that for her. Well, grow a fucking pair. Then grow own a up. fucking pair. Don't you kill your fucking best friend. Own up to it. Is she guilty? Of course. Yeah, she fucking. But, and, you know, I truly do believe like for the way that when I was watching that Dateline and like got to hear from people that were involved in both of their sides of their lives. Everyone was like, no, Denise was manipulative. Yeah, she was I can see that. super demanding. She was crazy. And then her best friend on there was like. Denise was awesome. She Denise was did not do that at all. Like literally Cheryl was telling Ansley that her mom was lying to her and that her dad was still alive. And I'm like, and Cheryl was like, I never once said that. Never once. And to think that it all started in a drunken threesome at Panama City Beach spring break in college. Yeah. That that's that was the beginning of it all. Something so stupid. Well, you did a great job covering that. It was a good carried on two parter. I'm glad. Was it worthy of the two parter? Yeah, absolutely. Good because imagine absolutely. how I mean it was thirty two pages total. Yeah. No way. Yeah, that was really good. Okay, good. I'm glad that it was worth it's really it. Really sad case. Oh, it's a fucked up case. Mike deserved better. No, poor Mike, dude. He Brian's just... dad deserved better. Cheryl deserved better. Man, so shitty, dude. So such shitty. a fucked up case. That is so fucked. Doesn't that make you just be like, fuck everyone? I'll never trust. I won't even trust anybody. Yeah, I trust no motherfucker. No, really. Like that's fucked. Like, dude, that's like if. Me, you, Logan, and Aaron did some fucked up crazy shit, bro. And then we killed the other. And then we, one of the two husband. killed each other. I've never heard pants. of that. Me, I never heard I want to watch the Dateline, though. Oh, you've got to go watch it. You can log into my Peacock that I bought. <laughs> I have Peacock. I don't in know a why fucking you bought panic. it. I've got Peacock. Well, I was thinking maybe I should call in. I was like, fuck it. I'll just get it. Yeah. I should have got it on Creeps and Crimes. Why are we not doing that yet? <laughs> we literally need it for research. I know. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for listening. And I will be back next. No, I will be. It'll be my birthday week next week. 
It'll be my birthday episode next week. It will be. It'll be my birthday episode. <gasps> what are we going to do? And on I'll Monday? be flying back on the day that this episode comes out. What are we going to do for your birthday app? Fucking nothing. No app for the birthday. No app for the birthday. That's my present to you. Babe. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> honestly, that would be fucking great. Now you guys know we're going to have a fucking episode. <laughs> you know me. I'm like, I'm like, oh, what do I want for my birthday? I would like to launch a new merch line for them. <laughs> I would like to give them a bonus episode. <laughs> I'd like to give them a nine parter. <laughs> I would like to give them a 20 minute intro. <laughs> you think we can swing that? All right, love you guys. Bye. Love you, bye.